Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. This morning, we'll be hearing God's Word from Acts chapter 25, verse 13, through 26, 32, which sounds, that sounds like a lot, at least I know for me, whenever I see uh, the, the text breaking across a chapter, it can be overwhelming. Um, it's not, uh, the, the thing is that it is a single complete story, and so in trying to take God's word as it comes and treat it the way it was originally written and communicated, we try to take stories together, at least within reason. As I've said before, if you've been here uh, the past few weeks, we are working our way through one whole story, but I chose not to read eight chapters of the Bible all in one shot. So here, we're, the, the story of the end of Acts is really the story of Paul's legal process before the Roman government. Uh, he was, he was a- attacked by a mob in Jerusalem, uh, which he was not surprised by. He had been warned that was likely to happen. The Jewish leaders uh, were not happy with what Paul was doing. They were not happy with him expanding God's kingdom aggressively to the Gentiles. They were not happy with him telling the Gentiles that they did not have to become Jewish first to become part of God's family. And so... They, uh, they stirred up a mob in Jerusalem, and the Roman soldiers actually rescued him from that mob. And then there's been a whole series of events of the Roman leaders, starting with the Roman military leader in the Tribune, and then two different Roman governors trying to figure out what, what Paul has done. Why are the Jewish leaders so upset, and what should they do with Paul, who it turns out is a Roman citizen? So the Roman leaders who have authority over Jerusalem and Israel at this time uh, can't, can't really just put him away or give him over to the Jews because they have an obligation to protect him and find out what has really happened and what would be just. And we just saw last week that in his, his second hearing before a Roman governor, after Paul's been in prison for two years, he made his appeal to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So now Paul is in limbo once again. The Roman governor Festus has said, you've appealed to Caesar, I will send you to Caesar but it hasn't happened yet. And so in today's story, it's kind of a pause, but it turns out to be another opportunity for Paul to make his defense. Now his defense here is not really a chance for him to change his fate because he has appealed to Caesar, he's going to Caesar, but he gets to speak before yet another king, this time the King Agrippa. And as we listen to Paul's speech to Agrippa, we can hear a lot of hope for ourselves this morning. So if you're here this morning and you're thinking, man, I could use some hope, listen to where Paul finds his hope and the hope he offers for each of us. This is Acts chapter 25, starting at verse 13, and I'll read through the end of chapter 26. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused and met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning is among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, 
saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of this has, these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that was written down so long ago. We pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you take this word and sink it deep into our hearts that it may be not merely information for our heads, but transformation for our lives to change the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we live this day and in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in the spring of 2005, uh, I was 21 years old, and I was a senior in college. And together with uh, 11 of my friends, a dozen of us uh, from our Christian fellowship, went on a hiking trip. Not just a hiking trip, but we went on a backpacking trip. And several of the older students among us planned this, and we invited some other uh, people to come with us, some 18-year-old freshmen off at college for the first time. And we planned this great trip. And I was in, I was in California, and so we drove up from Los Angeles, where our school was, up to the central coast of California, which if you've never been there, the central coast of California is a stunningly beautiful place where there are very tall mountains that go right down to the ocean. And there's the Pacific Coast Highway that goes right along between the mountains and the ocean where there's like as much space as this pavilion and there's a highway. And you've got ocean and you've got mountains. And back in 2005, uh, as some of you now crazily are too young to remember, but we had internet but, and we had cell phones, but we didn't have much. So if one was going on a week-long backpacking trip, we didn't have like alltrails.com and GPS and all these kinds of things and reviews. Instead, we went to the bookstore and we got a book that had a trail map in this wilderness of the central, the central coast of California. So we get this trail map and we plan out this five-day backpacking trip. And it was going to be beautiful. And we planned out our route, how far we were going to go each day. And we had the instructions. And we drive up there. And so when we get there, you know, it says just park, just park across from the campground. You can't park in the campground, just park on the shoulder. So we park four cars on the shoulder of the Pacific Coast Highway and just leave them there for a week. And we're like, I guess this is okay. And we walk into the mountains. We found a trail and we walk into the mountains following this trail guide. And it was a little bit surprising that like there was nobody else on this trail and really no, this should have warned us, but we were young and kind of stupid and we had a book with us. So we got to the first campsite and then the second day, we're supposed to do eight miles. So Tuesday, 
we're walking and we get to the halfway point, we're following the guide and we're there. And we keep following and it, the sun starts to go down and we're following this trail and we realize, you know, we're not really following much of a trail anymore. We're just trying to kind of find a trail. And I'm, I'm theoretically leading this trip, responsible for the guide for where we're going. And I, I start going faster and faster and faster as the sun goes down. And the people are kind of spread out way behind me because I'm like, if I can find this campground, then I can get them here with a flashlight. But if I can't find this, there is no way I can find this place in the dark. Eventually, it gets dark and I have found no campground. And I'm, I'm well aware by this point that I found no trail. And so I re rejoin the group and we find ourselves with the sun completely down, completely dark, and we're on a very steep slope where we have just kind of carved a trail along the side of the slope. And as we were carving this trail, it was like eroding under our feet, like the mountain was sliding down as we were kind of going along the slope. And we're strung out here in the dark, very seriously wondering where we can go and whether it is even possible to go back. And so we sit there, we get out our sleeping bags, it's California, you know, it doesn't rain, we don't need tents, uh, but we have to tuck our sleeping bags up against the bushes and the rocks on the hillside so we don't slide down the hill during the night. And we're sitting there talking about what we should do. And we are seriously discussing whether we climb up to the top of the mountain through the bush to hope that we can get cell phone service, because of course we didn't have any service. We did have two cell phones, but they didn't work. Or whether we climb down to where we can hear a river and just follow the river to the ocean and hope that we can walk back along the highway, or whether we go back along the trail and hope that we can make it that way. But frankly, in the middle of the night, as the sun was down, we really had very little idea what we were going to do. And, and you know, we were young and stupid, so we were naively optimistic, but in those moments, we didn't really have a lot of hope either. And it was Tuesday, and nobody was expecting us back home until Friday, so it's not like anybody was gonna come looking for us either. But then, so we spend the night, somewhat hopeless, somewhat uncertain. And in the morning, the light came up, the light dawned. And as we moved from darkness and uncertainty into light, everything seemed far more clear. And we said, you know what, going up the mountain, that is crazy. Going down to the river, that is crazy too. But the path that we had trod the night before in the daylight did not look nearly so bad. What had been scary in the, in the night, the prospect that we might slide down the mountain, we said, we can follow this path back. And we know that if we follow it back, within two hours, we will get back to a stream that we crossed and we can get water. That's kind of the big thing when you're backpacking is you need water. And we'll get to water and from there, we should be able to retrace our steps and get back home. The difference was the light. When we went from darkness to light, that made all the difference. And that, when, when we hear a big passage of scripture like we did this morning, sometimes there's a lot of words and it's hard to figure out what's going on. You've got to focus in to see what the key things are. And one of the key things that Paul says here is that God is calling all people to move from darkness into light. Because being in the light, not just the light of day that we experienced in that camping trip, but the light of God is what makes all the difference. He said it explicitly in 26 verse 18. 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. He sets up these contrasts, but light shows up two other times here. He mentions it specifically in verse 13, when he was describing his Damascus Road experience. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, the light. And then he said it again in verse 23, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What do we need when we feel hopeless, when we're looking for hope? We're all looking for hope, right? When times are dark, whether we're stuck out on a camping trip, uh, on a backpacking trip and don't know where to go, or in the bigger things of life, when we're facing illness and death, when we lose a job, when our nation seems like it's in turmoil and we don't know what's gonna happen and we are legitimately afraid for what the next month, days and months might bring. We're looking for hope. And Paul tells us here that our hope is found in God, that God is the one who gives hope and that hope comes in the form of light. And so the call for each of us is to move from darkness into light. We must move from darkness into light. We must move from the fear and uncertainty. Bad things happen in the dark. We can't find our way. If we had tried to go back on that trail, panicking in the darkness, say, we got to turn around and go back, we, we might well have fallen that night in the wilderness of California. We might have slid down that, that slope and gotten seriously hurt or gotten even more lost. When people in their day-to-day -day life, as, as you know, they say, like, nothing, nothing good happens after midnight, right? Maybe your parents said that to you when you're young. Those of you who are young, your parents will say that soon enough. Nothing good happens after midnight. In darkness, bad things happen. We do bad things under the cover of darkness. But God calls us to move into the light, to do what is right. And better than that, not just, God does not just call us to move into the light, but he himself brings the light. Just as we were stuck on that mountain with, with nowhere to go, no way to save ourselves, the thing that could save us that day, that night, was God bringing the light. We needed to wait on him to bring the light of morning. And then our path became clear and we could walk in obedience. So it's one thing to say that, right? It's one thing to say, oh, move from darkness to light, find your hope in God. But there's more here in this passage. Not only does the passage call us to put our hope in God and to move from darkness to light, but it shows us where that hope comes from. How, what does it mean that God gives hope to his people? God is the only source of hope for the world. There's three aspects of that hope that Paul specifically mentions here in his defense before Festus and Agrippa. The first and most important aspect of that hope is the hope is in the God who raises the dead. That's central to Paul's argument. And then the hope is found in that God calls all people to faith with emphasis on the all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And third, the hope is found in that God has done what he promised, and it can be verified. God raises the dead, God calls all people to faith, and God has done what he promised. First, we see that God raises the dead. When Paul highlights hope here, that's where he starts. And again, it's always interesting in these various defenses of Paul, say, what? this is not how I would start a defense of his supposed crime against the temple. Like I would start with, I didn't do what they say. But Paul starts with, 
I stand here on trial because of my hope. That's 26 verse 6. He said that before, before the Jewish council. My hope in the resurrection. My hope in the promises made by God to our fathers. It is this hope. Then he goes on in verse 8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? This is the hope that Paul is talking about. It is the hope that God raises the dead. And he emphasizes it again at the end of his speech. Verse 23, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead. The rising from the dead. First, the resurrection of Jesus. But that's just the first part. Notice that's what he says. First to rise from the dead. What does that mean for us? It means that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but that the promise of Jesus' resurrection is that we too will all rise from the dead. The hope that we have in God is fundamentally a hope that this life is not all there is. Jesus rose from the dead. It's a verifiable, well-established fact of history that Jesus of Nazareth died at the hands of the Roman government, and on the third day he rose from the dead. And his followers went out and proclaimed that message throughout the world, time and again saying, this is it. Jesus rose from the dead. Felix even knew, or Festus knew that. When he was explaining his confusion to Agrippa, back in verse 19, uh, which he doesn't understand what's going on. He said, I don't know what's going on with this guy Paul, why they're so mad. But 25, verse 19, certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Festus got it. He really did, even if he didn't realize it. That the key thing here is that Jesus rose from the dead. But I think the message for us this morning is not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but the hope that we all will rise from the dead too. Because that changes everything. It changes our perspective on everything to realize that death is not the end. So when we face suffering and death, when we see our loved ones die, when we see our loved ones nearing the point of death, when we see even ourselves come near to the point of death, when we see danger and uncertainty, it is right to mourn and lament. Death is evil. Jesus himself wept in the face of death. But the hope is that while death is evil, while death is to be mourned, it is not the end. There is life after death. And that gives us great comfort in the midst of sorrow and hardship. It also reorients our perspective on what is most important in life. Because if death is not the end, if we will rise from the dead, then this life is not all their end, all that there is. Something I heard now 12 years ago, 13, 14 years ago when we lived in St. Louis uh, has stuck with me. It was actually said to my wife, but she repeated it to me and it's always stuck with me. It was from another, uh, there was a pastor family there and the pastor's wife was speaking to a group of, of the women there and was explaining how how much the resurrection, the hope for life after death, impacted their life decisions. This was a family that they had a few kids of their own, but then they went out and they fostered and adopted a number of more kids. So even as their kids were getting older and he was you know, more or less successful in his career as a pastor, they maybe could have had some money but, and go and do some things like travel and have some nice things, but they kept 
adopting more children out of the foster system, where they would, they would foster them, and then sometimes, uh, if, if it, the opportunity was there, go ahead and adopt them as well. So they had quite a few children, and they were devoting themselves to that ministry and to the work of serving in the local church. And the thing that stuck with me that this woman said to Suzanne and to a number of her friends, she said, you know what, I would love to travel. I would love to see the world. But that's not what God has for us right now. And I know that there is life after death. There is a heavenly kingdom. Heaven come to earth. And in that kingdom, when heaven has come to earth, when we're living forever, I will have all the time in the world to travel to all the places that I want to see. Now, of course, that does not mean that it is wrong to travel. It is not wrong to want to do things in this world. But it does give us perspective on focusing our hearts on what is most important, on the relationships with people that will last into eternity, on the care and love we show to other people, the ways we seek to advance God's kingdom here and now, because we don't have to worry so much about our bucket list, because we know that if we have put our faith in Jesus and we trust in him and he has brought us into our family, we will have eternity to enjoy all of his good creation. And it will be even better than it is now. So as we know that not only has Jesus risen from the dead, but in doing so has promised that we will all rise from the dead. It is a comfort in times of hardship. And it is a challenge to our priorities and what we seek to do with our life. And it reorients us to the source of our hope, that our hope is in God. It is part of what it means to move from darkness to light. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, we will all rise from the dead, and so we can walk in his path, be obedient to his word, show love and sacrifice towards our neighbors. For God will be with us forever and ever and give us all good things. We have our hope in a God who raises the dead, first Jesus and then all who come after him. And who are those all who come after him? Because as our hope is in God who raises from the dead, it is also in God who calls all to faith in him. This is really the central point of Paul's argument. And, and he says that it's the central point of contention with the Jewish leaders. He says in verse, um, uh, in verse 21, 26, 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. What is this reason that he's talking about? So you have to look back. Verse 20, what did he do? Declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Also to the Gentiles. Look again up to verse 17. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And what's notable here is Paul's emphasis that the issue, the point of contention, is that he invited the Gentiles in. And the Jewish people were not that excited about that. They, they really still were behaving as if God was their God. That was kind of the, the world back then. Every, every tribe, every ethnic group had their own God. And so they had their God and didn't really understand why anybody else should be part of this. And Paul is saying, no, this God 
that the Jewish people that he has made himself known to, he is not just their God, he is the God. And this is the God that calls all people to worship him. And not as some kind of second-class citizens. You can come on if you become just like us. Notice how Paul emphasizes how everybody is the same before God. I love the end of verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. There's no easy, like, in here. Paul recognizes they are in darkness. They are under the power of Satan. They have sins that need to be forgiven. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified. Sanctified means to, be, to become holy, to do what is right, to become more like God in your actions. How does that happen? It's the kind of thing we tend to think of as like buckle down and work hard that we can be, do what is right and get better. But Paul's emphasis here, they're sanctified by faith in me. Not just the Gentiles, but the Jews too. That all people are in the same boat before God. All people are in need of God's power. The power comes up too. He says that in verse, uh, in verse 22, to this day I've had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying to small and great. Agrippa challenges him. Are you really trying to persuade me to become a Christian? That's in verse 28. And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I want not only you, but everybody. I want everybody to believe because all of us are in the same position. All of us are caught up in darkness. All of us are caught by the power of Satan. And we all need faith in God to move from darkness to light. It is not something that we can muster up on our own. It is not something that we attain through the performance of religious ritual or by constant effort, by acts of devotion, by giving our money, all of these good things are not the way that we move from darkness to light. Ultimately, they are not the way that we become righteous and holy in God's eyes, that we do what is just and good to other people. Instead, whatever our background, wherever we come from, it is by faith in God, Jews and Gentiles alike. In God's kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. Everybody is alike before him. And so this morning, if you are feeling like you don't fit in, you don't belong. God's word to you says that you are welcome here in God's community. If this morning you were burdened by your shortcomings, by your sins, I could never be good enough to be part of this community. I could never be acceptable before God. God says we are all in the same position. Yes, it, you want to be honest about where you are right now. You can be honest that you are walking in darkness, but God is offering you the chance to step into the light to receive the forgiveness of your sins. And how do you do it? It is simply by faith, by saying before him, Jesus, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I need your help. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you can make me part of your family. Would you do it? I need your help. And then you are the same as everybody else in this community. We were talking on uh, in our Thursday night Bible study uh, about, about this community, about resurrection community, about who we are as a church, and how one of the things that many of us feel about this church community is it's a place where people can be honest, that we are all kind of messed up. We all need a lot of help. Even if you look at somebody here, if you're relatively new to this community, and you're looking around, you're like, they have it all together. No, 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 we don't. Um, 
Whatever we are, whatever good we have, whatever love we show is by the grace of God in our life. So you too can join into that by faith in Jesus. And for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, who have recognized your sins and that you're walking in darkness and God is moving you into light, then the question is, what does it look like to continue to welcome others? This was the fundamental issue of the Jewish leaders at the time. They were not interested in welcoming others. They were content to just have their own thing, their own tribal God, like all the other nations. They'll be them. Other nations can have their own, and that's fine. But that is not what our God calls us to. Our God calls those of us who follow him, who know him, who have been saved by Jesus, to extend that welcome to others with open hands, to trust in him, to welcome people in, whatever, wherever they may be coming from. And we have to think about what we are doing, how we are acting, how we are showing welcome and love, how we are putting people off to welcome others in. And I said, you know, Paul, this was Paul's point of dispute with the Jewish leaders. But part of his argument to them was not that I am doing something new, it's that you're missing out on what God has always said. Because part of our hope in God is that he is a God who keeps his promises. That's what Paul's argument is in verse 22, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And again, when he speaks to Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe, in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Says this has not been done in a corner. This is something, this is part of God keeping his promises. Throughout the whole Bible, from the beginning when God made humanity in the Garden of Eden and made male and female in his image, all different. From the beginning when God sent out, his, sent out people at the Tower of Babel to live in different places and gave them different cultures and languages. His intention was to bring them back into one humanity, one people serving God together that all may follow him. And he made that clear throughout the Old Testament through Moses, through the prophets, were all intended that all people may see the light, that Gentiles be welcomed in as full members of God's covenant community. And so the call for each of us is to, to trust in God's promises, to investigate them for ourselves, to see whether what Paul is saying here about how the Bible all fits together is true. That was his call to the Jews who believed in the Old Testament, who believed in the prophets. Maybe some of you are wondering, okay, but what about, what about the Bible as a whole? Like, what about Jesus? Did he actually die and rose again? I said earlier, that was a, a verifiable fact. And it, it's something you can investigate. And Paul's claim here that this was not done in a corner is a call to investigate. There's a, a man named Lee Strobel, pastor, author. He's getting a little bit older now, but when he was a young man, uh, Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was an ardent atheist. He had questions about the existence of God, and uh, he, that led him into thinking, you know, reading atheist writers, and he became a solid, thoroughgoing atheist as a high schooler and a young college student, young adult. He was a reporter. He was a journalist, uh, an investigative and legal journalist, I think Chicago Tribune or something like that. And then Lee Strobel, as successful, recognized, awarded journalist, well, something happened. Lee Strobel got married, and all was well until his wife became a Christian. And now this atheist journalist 
was a little bit frustrated because his wife had become a Christian. But to his credit, Strobel saw that being a Christian had actually made a significant difference in his wife's life. And he liked, kind of liked who she had become as a person. She was kinder, more compassionate. And so Strobel said, you know what? I'm a journalist. I investigate things. I'm going to investigate. And over the course of two years, Strobel undertook a thorough investigation of the historical claims of Christianity. And he went and he interviewed philosophers. He interviewed historians. He interviewed all kinds of people. And he grilled them, as a journalist would do, to see whether this held up. And at the end of two years, he sat there in his basement, and he took his, his yellow legal pad, and he started sketching down the arguments on both sides, the arguments for the historical validity of Christ, the arguments for faith, the arguments for Christianity, and on the other side, the arguments for atheism. And he looked at it, having done this thorough investigation, and he said, you know what? This is not close. There, they simply, it would take more faith now for me to be an atheist than it would for me to be a Christian. And you can find uh, since that time, so that was at the age of 29, he made that decision. And then he went on, he, he continued his, his writing abilities. He wrote a number of books, including The Case for Christ, The Case for Christ, or The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and a number of others that kind of document his investigations and lay out the facts. And so this morning, if you're feeling doubtful, if you're uncertain, about what it says in the Bible, about the claims of the church, about Jesus and who he was, about what we're offering, I would urge you to investigate, as Strobel did. His books are one place to start. There are other places to start. You can read the Bible for yourself. You can look at the historical evidence. Paul calls us to investigate here. And so the call is out there to investigate, to verify what Jesus has done. This has not been done in a corner but it is verified that God is the one who gives hope. Jesus has risen from the dead. And because of that, we can move from darkness to light. And we can live lives of righteousness and goodness in service to one another. Because we know that this life is not the end. And that as God has called all people to himself, he has kept his promises. He will also raise us from the dead. And we will live with him forever. Would you, put your, or would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your grace to us. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would take this word and, and ring, roll it around in our heads as we go about our day and our week, that it may be food and life for us to change the way that we think and feel and live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.